the word of God. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The Word of God. All right, kids, I have a really pretty picture to share with you this morning. I asked Sarah Q for permission to steal her picture, and we're going to have it up in the back too, but this is something Sarah made about a month ago that really caught my attention, and it actually goes along with a little bit of what we're going to talk about this morning. You guys will be able to see it up there so I don't hang on to it too long. I don't want to hurt it. But you guys might know a familiar song that goes like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That has a little bit to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, but I am going to leave it up to you guys to to find out how do we let our light shine. The song says, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. A bushel is like a basket. It took me a while to learn exactly what that was, but I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to let it shine, and it's up to you guys to find out how. How do we let that light shine? Okay, so listen for that. We'll come to it in a little bit. But we come to this second piece of kind of verses that are actually grouped together. But for you, church, imagine that you're some of the only Christians in Dayton. In fact, what if this was the only church you're aware of? Imagine that the person who first brought you the gospel has been beaten and thrown in prison. So you've seen where believing in Jesus might actually lead you. Imagine that other believers have joined the church, but you're all very different. Imagine that the world outside of your church hates what your church stands for. They're offended at the message that you carry and even have the ability to report you to authorities or to beat you. What if it felt like you against the entire world? And yet, you're being called to take the good news of Jesus out there. Imagine that that same man who first told you the gospel is writing you a letter calling you to follow Jesus in humility to trust that God is powerfully at work in you as you work out this salvation that you've been brought into and to do it all with joy. A joy that you feel like is completely unattainable. In other words, imagine being the Philippians. Imagine what you'd be inclined to do given those circumstances. Over time, You may start to despise the people of this church that once brought you in when you first came to believe in Jesus. 
There have been many arguments and differences on how to do things. The unity you were meant to have with these brothers and sisters has been replaced with an underlying suspicion of one another. Ever since Paul left, the church has had a hard time working together. What would you be drawn to do? Grumble. Murmur. We don't really have to imagine what that feels like. We're familiar. It's, it's, it's what we tend to do when things could be better. Imagine, again, here comes a letter from Paul who loves you, who has made sure to hold out this life-changing news of the gospel to you. In fact, he's under house arrest for preaching that very gospel, and he says he's rejoicing because people are still hearing and still being saved even while he's locked up. And in that letter, he invites you to radically rethink what is most important in your life and evaluate what is it that will bring you lasting joy. Well, it's magnifying Jesus and modeling his humility, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, receiving the joy that can run beneath your suffering as you see the beauty of Christ and what he's won for you. It's living in a manner worthy of this gospel of Jesus that you embrace with faith, recalling the promise that the almighty God is the one who is working in you, who will complete what he started. But Paul sounds like he's from an entirely different planet. He's talking about joy in Christ at the worst time. He's assuring you that you can have this joy. That's the situation. And here's what he tells you next as a suffering Christian in Philippi who's opposed and fearful, but who is still trusting in Jesus in spite of it all. He says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, you're, you're not a Philippian Christian. You're a Christian at Sovereign Grace Church, Dayton. And in God's mercy, you are not the only Christian in this city. You're not under the threat of being beaten for proclaiming the gospel. But... The Philippians are experiencing struggles that we are so familiar with, right? Paul is exhorting them to press on with the assurance that God is going to continue to use them to proclaim the gospel in their city to their families, their co-workers, their children. We've been a part of these same arguments, the same grumblings, the same joylessness that Paul is calling the Philippians out of. So we come this morning to one of the primary ways that we, as a church, together, can work out our salvation with fear and trembling by doing all things without grumbling or disputing. I don't have a a main point for you, but kind of two main points. The first is the goal, which is living grumble-free until the day of Christ. 
Living grumble-free until the day of Christ is the goal that Paul lays out. We only started to get into what it means to work out our salvation last week, and this is what Paul leads with as far as the nitty-gritty of doing that. Humble obedience to God is modeled by Jesus and begins with doing all things without grumbling or disputing. He could have said so many things as far as, okay, he said earlier, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, which in part involves being humbly obedient like Jesus. Well, what does humbly obedient look like? It looks like doing all things without grumbling or disputing. He didn't say work out your salvation by praying faithfully or by fleeing sexual immorality, by being filled with the Spirit, by giving to the poor, but instead he invites us to put our future salvation on display by doing everything that we do without grumbling. The grumbling and disputing that he's talking about first has to do with the Philippians' relationships with each other within the church. Grumbling is that under your breath murmuring. The thing that you either do in secret or with a few close, trusted people. Disputing is like the collision of two opinions which turn into arguments and are brought on by evil secret thoughts like loaded guns pointed at one another, ready to go. At its root, the Philippians' disunity is made possible by this grumbling, whether quiet criticisms or, or discontent murmuring. Complaints aired like puffs of smoke that it's choking out their joy. Maybe Yodia and Sintike, who we'll meet later in the book, maybe their falling out is discouraging for the rest of the Philippians. We all know how deflating seeing friends at odds with one another can be. And sometimes we grumble about how our problems are their fault. If, if, they just, if this just didn't happen with them, this would be a whole lot easier. What if the Philippians' trust for Paul is waning? Maybe they feel like he's abandoned them or that he's a fanatic. What if they disagree with the way Paul is communicating things? So they try to gather the people in the church who feel the same way about him. What if someone wants to host the church in their house, but that, that rich Lydia lady gets to do it instead? It sounds simple, and I'm doing a lot of speculating, but the point is to show that the Philippians were living lives just like ours. They were familiar with quarrels and seemingly normal things, which are con contributing to something very damaging to the Philippians' display of the gospel and to their endurance in the faith. These grumblings are sorry, clouding, crowding sound very similar. Clouding or crowding out their ability to see the beauty of Christ shown in their unity, which is one of the things meant to inflate their joy, not, not to rob them of it, to inflate their joy and to keep them afloat in the midst of their suffering for this good news. Paul uses the word grumbling to immediately, I'm sure you've already thought of it this morning, to immediately connect us back to the most famous instance of grumbling in the whole Bible. That's Israel grumbling in the wilderness. It's actually more than one instance. It's several instances and places in Scripture. And we're, it's where we find out what grumbling is and why God 
through Paul is calling us away from it. Listen to this story from, from Exodus 16. Paints, it paints a, a, a very real picture for us. So the Israelites set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The Israelites were an enslaved people personally set free by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were free, but they were hungry. As they suffered in the wilderness, they turned things on Moses and Aaron. You guys are at fault because you brought us into this desert. We'd rather be dead in Egypt with full bellies than out here starving. They're directing their words to Moses and Aaron, but their complaint and grumbling is really against God. I was surprised reading this again because in this instance, God responds so, so graciously to them. He listens to their, their evil grumbling, their, their misguided complaining, and he gives them food. He hears them. He responds graciously. But that wasn't always true because they grumbled a lot. Take some time and read Numbers chapter 14 sometime this week. It's a story of the spies who scoped out the land of Canaan, the promised land, The overwhelming majority of the spies told about the fearsome people that lived in this promised land. And do you know what the people of Israel did next? No surprise, they grumbled. And what came out of their hearts in that moment was enough for God to say this in response. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice Shall see, shall see the land that I swore to give their, to their fathers. And none of these who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. I just included that part about Caleb to show a little bit of the contrast But God hates this unbelieving grumbling, not because it's annoying to him, but because it's sin. It's treason. 
It's taking the breath breathed into man by God and exhaling it back to him in complaint. It's us, finite people, telling the all-knowing one that he doesn't know what he's doing. It's weak people who need sleep and food and water telling the all-powerful one that he's not able. It's presumptuous people telling the king of the universe that we have better ideas or better timing or a clearer sense of love and mercy and justice. And this is especially offensive to God when our complaining and our murmuring, as in the case of the Philippians, is directed at our brothers and sisters whom he loves and whom Jesus shed his blood for. He cherishes his children. And just like we feel when when our kid gets pushed down at the playground or someone we love is being mistreated, God burns with a jealous love. All grumbling against one another is grumbling against God. Think, Think about that for a moment. All grumbling against one another feels very direct. It feels very um, one, one person to another. Involves God. It is against God. And Paul explains in his letter to the Corinthians that those stories about Israel grumbling against Moses and Aaron, primarily against God, are specifically instructive for us. Listen to, to 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things that the Israelites' experiences in the wilderness took place, why? As examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's referring to that entire generation that did not come into the promised land primarily because of their sin of grumbling. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he would also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. I don't know about you, but I've never considered that verse specifically in reference to grumbling. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Even though you feel like this is the way, this is what I need to do right now. This, I need, just need to breathe out this, this complaint in a, in, a, in a presumptuous way. He will also provide the way of escape. We'll come to that again in a moment. But grumbling is a temptation we all face. We look back at the Israelites to see the seriousness of treasonous grumbling so that we can escape from that temptation. That's the negative side of why we should work out our salvation by, by doing all things without grumbling, with, without just with, not just without grumbling, but with a distinct, noticeable lack of that grumbling. But there's a positive side to this too. The purpose is not simply hey, just stop grumbling. Just to say that we've stopped grumbling, that we've, we've put this thing away as if it's just a task to accomplish. I put Dan's summary statement of the book of Philippians up here because I think it would be helpful to revisit and provide that, that 
motivation that is, that is more than just a do not do. The whole summary of, of Philippians, we can experience indestructible joy that is produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ displayed in the gospel and in God's people. What does seeing the beauty of Christ have to do with grumbling? And the short answer is everything. It has everything to do with grumbling. Our agitated hearts would rather change the people or the situation rather than learn the joy of contentment. And to see the beauty of Christ who has won for us the option of living free of grumbling. Knowing how prone we are to this, I pray that the Spirit will show us exactly that this morning, that there's a better way to live and it yields joy. It is made possible by Christ. You, you, are, you have the full weight of that triune God we talked about last week who is working in you. It's possible for you. And Paul unfolds the purpose for avoiding a grumbling heart in the second part of that first verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things without grumbling, work out what God has worked in. You are children of God. And the goal is that you live like what God has made you into. This matches up with Paul's prayer at the beginning of the letter, Philippians 1.10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We don't make ourselves pure. We don't make ourselves blameless. And yet, I was just reflecting on uh, in Revelation when, when the bride is presented to Christ, she is in, in pure white garments. And Revelation says that those garments are a symbol of something, and it's the righteous deeds of the saints. So it's, it's almost as, as if she is, the church is adorned with a lack of grumbling, adorned with a love for others, adorned with sacrificial love, generosity, caring for the poor, all manner of things, humbly walking like Jesus, looking to the interests of others. That, that is her adornment. So we don't make ourselves blameless, but we are participating in being blameless, innocent children before God at the day of Christ. And that language that Paul uses of a crooked and twisted generation is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32, which is actually surprisingly describing God's people, Israel. It says, they have dealt corruptly with me, God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Israel failed at being a faithful people who loved God with all that they are. They were rebellious and crooked. But he doesn't compare us with Israel. He calls the world crooked and twisted instead. I don't think we need anyone to convince us that we live in a crooked and twisted generation. Our world is both broken and permeated with sin. And we know it because we were once part of it. And we know it because we see it on a daily basis in so many different forms. That said, it, it, never, reminds, it never hurts to remind us 
how our world exists. Our world exists as a crooked and twisted, dark and doomed place. But we stand out in that place that we live in every day. We're not like the Israelites in Deuteronomy and we're different from the world, which leads Paul to call and describe the church in Philippi as lights, living lights, literally like stars on a cloudless black sky, balls of gas burning millions of miles away, as a warthog named Pumbaa would say. Believers, particularly believers who live grumble-free, peacemaking, grateful lives, together burst onto the scene of this dark world as lights. Lights that are the roadmap or the beginning of such a roadmap to Jesus for those lost in darkness. Paul's just infusing this and tying in all of these promises and prophecies made way back in the Old Testament, including Daniel. Daniel 12 is where God tells Daniel some of the future, and he tells Daniel to seal it up for a later time because it's not going to make sense until then. This is what he says in Daniel 12, two through three. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So kids, this is where we're getting to how exactly do we shine, let that little light glow in a place of darkness. What Daniel didn't understand and would never live to see come true, Paul is saying is true right now. You, church, shine like the brightness of the sky above. And that's not like self-esteem talk. That's not just you're bright just because of who you are necessarily. That's what God has transformed you into by his power. But it is truly and actually who you are, friends. You were once part of that dark backdrop. You blended into that dark backdrop and now you shine in a similar way to how the light of the world burned bright when he arrived on the scene. When he interrupted this world's hellbound existence and brought hope. You are living in a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. As far as our world is concerned, they've never known anything except lives full of grumbling and conflict that multiplies on top of conflict. The God of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Specifically, he has a specific purpose in blinding the, mind, the eyes of unbelievers and it's to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And they need the bright light of a church that doesn't grumble, that does all things without disputing or shaking a finger at God so that they can encounter the soul-awakening light of Christ. We are in direct contrast with the world. Some of you might recognize this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. If a crooked stick is before you, you need, to explain, you need not explain how crooked it is. Lay a straight one down by the side of it and the work is well done. Now he was particularly talking about truth, preaching truth to expose error, but I think the illustration still applies. Take a straight looking stick 
and put it next to a straighter stick and it suddenly becomes clear how crooked that first stick really is. Take a flashlight in a dark room and there's an immediate and noticeable difference between the darkness and the light. Recall what what Jesus said on the Sermon on, on the Mount in Matthew 5. You, and he's talking to his disciples, but specifically just referenced, blessed are you if you are reviled for my name. So you suffering, reviled Christians are what? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, example, your joy and lack of grumbling in the midst of suffering, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is an amazing way in which the unity of Christ's bride, the absence of this just constant and caustic grumbling, discontent, murmuring, that it, it, it begins, it doesn't speak the whole gospel to the world, but it begins manifesting it and representing it to them. Another quote from G. Walter Hansen, complaining turns off the light of the church in the world. Proclaiming the word of life shines the light of the life of Christ into the darkness of the world. So we shouldn't be surprised if our influence in the world is diminished in some ways or rise and falls in some ways on how strongly our, our light is shining of, of this, this lack of pointing a finger at God or this, this love, sincere love for one another. Now sometimes we feel like we have the right to complain and to grumble against God. And that, what that doesn't what, I, what I'm about to explain, it doesn't mean that we can't voice our complaint to God. He is actually very welcome to that. There's just a clear difference between that open door that he gives us to lament and to say, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Like Jesus said from Psalm 22. And there's the other, this other route of you're wrong. This is not... This is not good. This is not right. So we sometimes, we, sometimes we feel like we're, we're entitled to that. This is so bad, and it, it is so hurtful to me that, that it's just going to simmer. It's going to dwell in my heart as something that I don't trust God with. I, I trust him with my life, but this area just this seems so um, counter to who he is and what he said he's done to... I can't help, I can't help. What am I, what am I left to do? What you're left to do is cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. To lament like the psalmist does. To say, I'm, I'm in the bottom of a pit. They use so many descriptions of how difficult their life is in that moment. Psalm 77, have you forgotten your promises? Have you, do you even know how to do good anymore? God, God actually welcomes that. But it's worth, worth asking ourselves, why do I feel that right, that, that demand that I, I can exist in this place of complaining and grumbling? Another kind of diagnostic for us is to kind of step back from yourself a little bit. What, what are your conversations like about others? What are your thoughts like 
towards others. And I, I would encourage us not to get into to too many specifics right now, but just step back and say, are, am I marked by grumbling? Is that the common theme? Is that the, the, the thing that you'd be able to find in most of my conversations with other people about others or, or, or to others? And again, that's not to say that we can't bear our hearts to one another, that we can't say this is, this is difficult or I, I really don't agree with this or that. There's room for that. However, is, is it, are you marked by a disputing, a grumbling, murmuring? That's why I, th- I found that whole like under, under your breath kind of description helpful as far as this, it's, it's secret. I know that if, it, if this were brought to the light or if, or if I, if I was around somebody that I knew would kind of have their head on straight about the wrongness of this, that's, those are kind of signals for us. Another quote from the same commentator, when, when Christian conversation is laced with complaints and personal attacks, Christians have lost their distinctive quality as the children of God in a world characterized, marked, by that same kind of negative tone. It's not just a matter of positive and negative. It's are we resembling the world in our grumbling or are we standing out and shining as lights in our, both our gratefulness to God, but also that, that good avenue of lament of I know where to take this complaint to. I know who will hear me. I know who understands me and who can do something about it as well. That was a specific application for us as a church body. It was, it was brought up in our, um, in our prayer time for, during our open house for this, this new building. Uh, it was brought up that there's gonna be lots of opportunity for disagreement, dissension, division. How are we supposed to use this space? Which, which types of ministry are we supposed to be prioritizing? Colors and things. You guys know that that when lots of thoughts kind of get put into a pot and are mixed together, there's, there's, just, there's lots of opportunity for grumbling against one another, to one another. And the question is, how are we going to avoid that? How are we going to distance ourselves from what the world would do and kind of get into a squall and, and, and be ready to, to have their own way and that's where we come to point number two, which is the way out. First Corinthians 10 told us that there's a way out of every temptation, including the temptation to grumble. And the way out of it for us, even in that specific situation, is believing and rejoicing. So doing all things without grumbling and disputing is what we're called to do, but how do we get there? How are we even supposed to ask the Spirit to enable us First of all, we cannot have joy, which is the opposite of grumbling and disputing, without the good news. Remember, like, like Dan had said, remember that seeing the beauty of Christ in the gospel and, his, and in his people is what the Spirit uses to bring about joy. So we have to have our eyes open, but we also have to do what Paul says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
the Philippians shouldn't expect to go on shining as lights or to be filled with the joy Paul is talking about if they're not holding fast to this word of life. And neither should we. We shouldn't expect to overcome a propensity to grumble if we hold fast, if we're, if we're not holding fast to this word of life, this good news that keeps us oriented. The good news that tells us we are forgiven and redeemed and treasured by God himself who has not withheld his own son for us. The good news that reminds us that suffering for Christ's sake is a privilege and it's all part of God's master plan to rescue people and deliver us one day. The good news that Christ will honor our labors and our efforts to specifically pursue doing all things without grumbling and complaining, holding fast to the word of life so that, so that Paul knows that he did not run or labor in vain. That seems selfish. Hey, guys, keep at it so that it turns out to be worth it for me. I don't want to be caught wasting my time. He sounds like this terrible boss who's just using his employees as a way to funnel money his direction. But we have to remember that Paul loves this church in Philippi. He's lived with them. He's not using them. He's intently focused on them knowing and them proclaiming Jesus. He surrendered his life and his efforts to serve Christ so that he would be made known. And he wants the Philippians to join in on presenting themselves to Jesus one day as an offering of praise to Christ for his saving power and his mercy. He's not manipulating, he's motivating. He's saying, when I come before the risen king on the day of Christ, I want, I want you to be there with me. I want to you to be represented in what I lay before the king of glory. I want to see the glorious proof that he's completed his work in you by you striving to replace your grumbling with joy. Paul has labored in this letter to encourage the Philippians to hold out this joy that they can have as they're an outpost for the gospel in a crooked generation. His desire for his labors to be successful has more to do with the Philippians' faith than him maintaining some sort of winning record. He proves that with the next sentence. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He's coming full circle here to show that he's chosen the alternative route of believing and rejoicing over and against the life spent grumbling about how things or people shouldn't be the way that they are. He compares himself to a drink offering which happens after an animal sacrifice. It's like a closing ceremony where, where wine or some other drink is poured out onto the ground. And he's saying, even if I am poured out and suffer for you Philippians, which in some ways he already is, he's already imprisoned, he, he might be looking at his own martyrdom, even if that's true, even if I die for the sake of your establishment in the faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. In other words, if Paul is used simply to be a part of their faith and salvation, he is glad regardless and content regardless. But especially in this case, he will choose to rejoice with them. Paul's in prison and he's showing you and I what's most important, which is the glory of Christ pursued through joy. And it's an invitation to rejoice 
rather than grumble. At the end, he says, rejoice with me. Saying, I'm rejoicing. Come, rejoice with me. Don't choose the route of grumbling and disputing with one another. Come and rejoice. Do all things without grumbling because this is the alternative. The alternative for you is joy. A joy that cannot be destroyed by suffering and that is not threatened by doubts of God's goodness towards you. Now there were several people that came to mind as far as who's decisively taken this route, taken a route away from grumbling and and towards joy. And um, Lynn Kuhn isn't here this morning, but I'm thankful for Lynn because earlier this week, I think it was Friday, just affected by the fact that sometimes, and this is true of many of you, so, so sometimes I forget that Lynn can't walk because she is distinctly marked by a joy that, that doesn't diminish, because she's talked about how difficult things are, it doesn't diminish that, and yet it starts to pale compared to the joy that springs up and, and is, is untainted by grumbling. Talk about, we, we think of lots of reasons that we might have rights to grumble, and some of us might feel like we have stronger reasons than others, and yet it's always, there's always a choice laid before us to choose whether to shake our finger at God and grumble, even if, even if it's truly very difficult, and to steer the way of joy, and to choose the fact that, like Paul, who's in prison, I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing. This does not touch the joy that has been made available to me through Jesus Christ. So we hear his call to, to rejoice with me. And, and I pray this morning that we kind of take, take a step on that path to say, I, I want to rejoice with you, Paul. I want the kind of joy that you have. Now I know that it's through Christ alone, but not just initially believing in Christ, but working out my salvation, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, seeing the unity that is put together by God himself and rejoicing in that too. But even after all this, it's still really easy to see this command as all I need to do is stop grumbling. That's all I need to do, stop grumbling. That's what the word of God is telling me to do, so I'm gonna do that. But Paul has shown us that the way to stop grumbling is to not keep a tally of whether or not you're murmuring against people or against God today. The way to do all things without grumbling and disputing is for us to hold fast to the word of life, to choose to behold and worship Christ as our treasure and in turn have our grumbling happily replaced with joy. People rooted in the joy that Christ brings can handle when we sin against one another. People rooted in the joy that Christ brings can supernaturally endure suffering by the power of the Spirit. People rooted in the joy that Christ brings are are noticeable because there is a shocking absence of sour complaining in their life. You can probably think of specific people These are the ones who are without fault and who shine like bright lights in the world. So let's work towards that, knowing that God is at work in us and knowing that one day we'll be presented before him as those completed and sanctified by him.